Okay, ladies, so glad you're here tonight. Uh, for those of you who are new, I've met a couple of new people tonight. We are working chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Ruth. So a little background before we hit chapter three tonight. Um, of course, we know that this book takes place in the time of the judges. That was a very crazy time in Israel's history that can be summed up in the last verse of the book that says this was a time Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So right in the middle of this time frame, we have this beautiful story of Ruth. So we have a family who had to flee um, Bethlehem in Judah because of a famine. They went to Moab. Um, the father died. The two sons married Moabite women, and then they also died. They were in Moab for roughly 10 years um, when this happened, and then Naomi hears that the famine's over and wants to return to Bethlehem. So she tells her daughter-in-laws to stay. They both want to go. She ends up convincing one to stay, but Ruth makes a commitment to her and decides to come back to Bethlehem with her. So last week we saw that she began doing something called gleaning in the fields to provide for both herself and her mother-in-law. Um, we've looked at a couple of different Hebrew laws that are very important in understanding this story. If you don't know them, just I would just get the tapes or look in the notes. We've been over so far the law of the Leverite marriage as well as the law of gleaning. We're going to see another law tonight, and then we're going to see the one that ties it all together next week. Uh, but this is where we are. Um, she met Boaz last week. I um, think we can all agree what an incredible man to meet, um, and we'll see more of his character tonight. So, so this is where we are. Um, I'm going to read chapter 3. You have chapter 3 in your notes. And, of course, you're always welcome to follow along in a version if you um, prefer your own version. So this is chapter 3. <clears throat> then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. <laughs> he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for you are my fellow townsmen, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But he, if, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, again, we are so thankful for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Lord, thank you for the freedom we have to have your word, read your word, be able to gather without fear. Lord, let us never take that for granted. Lord, we have 18 verses tonight. Lord, that's it, 18. And I know you have something for all of us within these few short verses. Father, I pray that you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you open our ears so that we not only hear, but we understand. And Father, I pray that you open our hearts that we might receive. Let us be fertile soil, Lord, for your word. All this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so chapter 3, verse 1, and this isn't in your notes, but it just hit me when I was reading through it again today before I came. The chapter starts out with the word then. When is then? Then is a time marker, and here we have it, and we don't know what precedes it. So very quickly, if you want, flip back to your last chapter, and we'll see. I'm just going to read from verse 22. It says, And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you may be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her. So here we're talking at the end of the harvest. Okay? Now, very quickly, um, 
just know you all chapters and verses did not come into the Bible. Um, chapter breakups were in like the 13 and 1400s. Verses were not until the 1500s. And I am very thankful that we have chapters and we have verses. It allows us to find things. It allows us to talk about things easier. It allows us to study. Um, I am so happy for that convenience. But there is always a cost with convenience. And I think we can see that the cost has been people read the Bible very differently today than it was meant to be read. You all, these were books. These were books. They were meant to be read beginning to end. Not just you have a bookshelf of books and you pick one up and you read a page and the next day you pick another one up and you read a page and you keep on going. You lose your context. Most of the New Testament are letters. Think of how we read letters. Would you ever open a letter, go straight to the middle, read a verse and lay it down for a couple weeks, then go back to it and then read other letters in the meantime and then think you know what the letter writer was trying to tell you? You all, there, there is a time and there is a place for scripture memory verse Absolutely, absolutely, because we need that at quick times when we're at war and we just need a verse that we can say. But that cannot be the only way we approach this word. We need beginning to end. Paul calls it full counsel of God, all of it. And we will get a lot if we do nothing but start reading it the way it was intended to be read as books. So, enough of that. Okay. So then, we know this is after one of the harvest. Her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So here we have again the Naomi, her mother-in-law. I feel like this is repeated almost as many times as Ruth the Moabite. And we talked about this, that the narrator does not want us to forget who Ruth is and where she came from. And I'm beginning to think the narrator also doesn't want us to forget about this relationship, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Um, so I got into just a concordance, looked into this. There's another interesting story. I've got this in your connection here, and you can study it out on your own. But the same story um, is told in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it is the story of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And in this story, Peter's concerned for his mother-in-law. He goes to get Jesus. She has the privilege of holding Jesus' hand. He heals her. And it says she immediately gets up and starts serving them. So it's very short, but it's told three times. And I'm thinking this story, that story told multiple times. Both times this relationship is special. And then 
I'm just thinking, and I have this as an application for you, in case you think this way. You all, these applications, all you're getting is how I think when I study the Bible. So you can take them or leave them. But I just started thinking, what a maligned relationship in our culture. (laughs) It's always portrayed horribly in books and shows and movies. Um, it's never thought of as a wonderful relationship, usually a nuisance or, um, I don't even know all the words. I won't even go into it, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and ladies here is a mother and daughter-in-law and their care for one another, their sacrifice for each other changed all of history. Wow, we get to choose the men we marry, but with that, we get a lot of other relationships. Mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, brother-in-laws, sister-in-laws, cousins, all all sorts of things, nieces and nephews. Um, I, I would just say, maybe think about these extra relationships you have in your life. Take an inventory. How do you handle them? How do you, how do you treat them? And maybe just begin to look at that. So here's what she says to, her, to Ruth. Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? These two phrases are showing Naomi's two desires for Ruth a husband, and children. Now, we, again, there's a lot of things we don't see here as American readers of English, but this would have been just a two-part blessing she was saying over her daughter-in-law. And we see that, if you remember, when we first, when Naomi was first trying to convince her daughters to stay back in Moab, and she says, stay, find rest, Find rest with a husband, okay? Um, So there's this whole idea that um, this rest, she's really saying, end your plight of widowhood by getting the safety and security that's found in a marriage. So that's what she's saying right there, a blessing of a marriage. Then she says that it may go well with you. And to look at this one, um, I have Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3, if you want to turn there or read it from here. It says, now this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. This is saying, let it go well with you in the multiplication of your family. So when Naomi is speaking this over Ruth, she's saying, this is what I want for you. I want you to be blessed with a husband and I want you to be blessed with children. Now, she faces three huge problems in bringing this to pass. 
Um, first, the proliferation of Elimelech's line when neither she nor Ruth have male heirs. Okay, this was very important in this culture, still very important in Arab cultures. Okay, so she has no one to continue the name of Elimelech. Secondly, and we'll dig into this one a lot next week, but she would have had, Elimelech would have um, given up claim to his land for a bit while he had to sojourn in Moab, okay? And again, we'll get into this next week, but she's got to get her land back. And then thirdly, how can she possibly provide what she's wanting to provide for Ruth when she's a foreigner, a Moabite. These men weren't even supposed to marry Moabite women, okay? So all these issues, I have no doubt, would have felt insurmountable, but they're going to find that the answer to one of these is the answer to all of these. So verse 2, is not Boaz our relative? with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing grain tonight at the threshing floor. So Naomi knows the laws of the land. She knows the culture. She knows how things play out, okay? So she's beginning to devise a plan for Ruth. So is not Boaz, when she asks this, it's really a rhetorical question, um, showing that she's beginning to see, okay, he's, he's the answer. He, he's going to be the answer. And then not only this, but you all, Naomi knew where to find Boaz. Said he's going to be on the threshing floor tonight. Okay. Um, little application for us. Do we know where to find the answers we need? These were huge, you all. These were huge things she was dealing with. And I don't see her going around asking a lot of other women their opinion. Okay, that's good. Okay, that's good. She goes to the person who can help her with these issues. Um, down there for a connection, we just went through James. Oh, my gosh, what a letter. Um, write out James 1, 5 there for yourself. This is over the week. Um, and then read in 1 Kings a story who did the exact thing that you're going to write in James. So she tells her, go to the threshing floor. That's where he's going to be tonight. So let's dig in just a bit and look at this process of grain preparation because it's going to help us to see why he's even there. How did she know he was going to be there that night? So we got into the reaping last week. Reaping is simply when they're gathering the grain at the harvest. And remember, we saw that the landowners got to reap. And then the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, they got to come in afterwards to glean. Okay? So then after that came the threshing process. And this is just the loosening of the edible part of the grain from the husk. And it was done with something called a flail. I have a picture for you right there. It's just a wooden stick and it will have one or more smaller wooden sticks. And the grain is actually beaten with these sticks to loosen the husk. 
And this is all done on a threshing floor. And this threshing floor is a large, hard area um, where the grain is poured and just beaten against the hard ground. And this winnowing or the threshing floor uh, was always located at the east of the city so that the westerly wind could more easily take away the chaff. So they would beat it. And then you had wind winnowing when they would actually throw it up and then more of the chaff would be removed. Okay, And the winnowing would take place um, late afternoon or early evening when the winds prevailed. So I, I want you to take special note here, you all, both the placement of the threshing floor and the time of the winnowing were very strategic. These were not on accident. Okay? So... I want to introduce you something called the Law of Expositional Constancy. Last week, we looked at typology. And with this, it's very similar. But the whole idea in all these little things that I want to show you is that it will sort of open up your eyes to some of the hidden things that are in the Word that we might just read right over if we're not paying attention for them. Okay, so this simply means that the same idioms are used in scripture over and over and over again, and they mean the same things throughout, okay? You can see that in a rock, okay? Where it says Jesus is the of our salvation, okay? Over and over, there, there's a lot connecting Jesus with the rock. You all, this is why we see when Moses, when, when the people were crying out for water and God told them to hit the rock, hit the rock, and exactly what they needed for their life came forth. And then a little while later, the people were needing water again and God said, talk to the rock. Get this, you all. And Moses hid it. He was disobedient. And it cost him the promised land. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. But the picture was, the rock only had to be struck once. Once. That, that's kind of what we see in these kinds of things of the constancy of these idioms. Um, leaven is another one. Um, leaven is a corrupting agent. Obviously, you put it into dough, and it makes the dough puff up, puff up. It's associated with pride. This is why we learn later, be careful of the, of the Pharisees. It was their pride. So as we begin to dig into some of these things, we can get a little more meaning from the scriptures. So in your connections over there in your applications are some things you can do this week to kind of practice through some of these things. But what I want you to see today is that the threshing floor, when it's mentioned, is usually a place of judgment. Okay? And then this sifting, winnowing, 
threshing is used multiple places, and it's all about separation, the good from the bad. Okay, separating the good from the bad. So you can see here in Psalm, I have one for you here, Psalm 1, 3 through 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And then in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, such a hard passage, but when you really look into it, it is so amazing. Um, this is where Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter saying, "Oh, um, you know, I'll follow you anywhere." And Jesus says, "Peter, Peter, it's like Satan has asked for you to sift." you like wheat and Jesus's reply (laughs) he says I pray for you that your faith not fail you and when you return you be able to help your brothers oh my gosh would you be tempted to say why didn't you pray I don't have to go through it (laughs) Jesus could have stopped it. Jesus could have prayed anything and it would have happened. He prayed that his faith did not fail. He needed the sifting to prepare him for his ministry. Because if you remember way back in Matthew, long before this story would have happened, Jesus told him, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. He wasn't ready He had to go through some tough things to be prepared. We all go through times of winnowing and sifting and threshing. And you all, sometimes it truly feels like things are getting beaten out of us. Sometimes it's a little more gentle. Sometimes it's a little more just the wind, the breath maybe blowing some things out of us. But you all don't be scared of those times. Don't fight those times. Because what I can guarantee you there, Satan meant for Peter's destruction. Jesus knew it was for his preparation. Think of times like this in your life, and it might make them a little easier. So, all that to say, as you're reading through the Word, um, and again, in all these connections, it gives you a chance to practice through some of these idioms this week. It, It will help you, again, just to see some little hidden things throughout the Word that make it so special, you all, that make it so easy to trust, you all. All these different books... And there's no inconsistencies in things like this. Over 40 different authors, 66 different books, no inconsistencies. Nobody, no human could have written this. It is truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
Then she says in verse 3, Wash therefore and anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So here's her instructions. Wash, anoint yourself, put on your cloak. So three specific steps. On the surface, all makes sense. She's been out working very hard. So she says, take a bath, smell good, put on some nice clothes. Okay? So if we go into this a little deeper, we're going to see these things repeated in several other places. Okay, one of which we see this biblically, you all, when David comes out of his mourning. And if you remember, this is after his sin with Bathsheba. Bathsheba has a baby and he is told that baby is going to die. And he goes into mourning. And when the baby dies, he comes out of his mourning and he does those three steps. He washes He anoints himself, takes off the clothes of mourning, and puts on new clothing. Um, This is going to be the end of Ruth's mourning time. She lost her husband, too. Culturally, if we dig into this a little deeper, this is also the preparation of a bride to wash Um, This special bath, you all, is called a mikveh. It is taken prior to a wedding. It's a ritualistic bath, which symbolizes um, the separation from an old life to a new life. Okay, same root where we get the word baptism. Kind of crazy, preparing for a wedding here. Um, The anointing, the anointing of both persons and objects you all is very, um, it just happens so much in this culture and and it signifies a marking of something as special, okay? Separating something for a purpose. That's what this anointing did. And then the clothing, The bride wears white to symbolize purity. And this wedding day is known as a day of spiritual renewal. Okay? So we see it biblically. We see it culturally. And you all, this is also our steps. Think about this in our relationship. You all, we are washed in the blood of Jesus We are anointed with the oil of gladness. We are separated for a new purpose. And then we are clothed in his righteousness. We don't have to wear our own filthy rags anymore as they are called. We get to wear his righteousness. Amazing. Amazing. So this is what she is telling her to do. So, another connection for you there with white garments. 
Then she tells her, do these three things, and then uncover his feet and lie down. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, Naomi, as we know, knows this culture, understands this process. Can you even imagine how Ruth might be thinking? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Would this be scary? I mean, I can almost feel her vulnerability in not understanding this. Yet, this is what she is told, uncover his feet and lie down. Now, in order to understand this, we need to do a little background in clothing. And believe it or not, we are going to hit clothing in Ruth, and we're going to hit it again in Esther. So, so much like today, you all, oftentimes, especially in like the military, um, with pilots, we can see people's ranks and their achievements on their clothing, either on their chest, stripes on their arm, pins, medals, all sorts of things. Someone can walk into a room and they don't have to say a word and you can tell their rank, okay? Now, at this time in ancient Mesopotamia, this was all done on the hem of a man's garment, okay? These things, these um, that show their place in society or their accomplishments or even their, um, their wins in battle could be sewn into the hem of their garment, okay? Now, knowing that, Let's look at a couple places in the word where we see how significant this is. Think about in Exodus, Exodus 33, 18. When Moses says to God, show me your glory, think of what he's allowed to see. The hem of his garment. He wants to see his glory and that's what he's shown Wow. Um, In Deuteronomy, we get all the tassels that are put on the priestly robes, all with huge significance. In Matthew 9, remember the diseased woman? And all she wanted to do was to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Now, she was thinking incorrectly. She thought the power was actually in the hymn. Of course, we know it's not. But that's how important the hymn was. She thought if I could only touch that, I would be healed. We see that same story in Luke 8. We just get a few more details in Luke than we do in Matthew. So, again, biblical significance here. There's cultural significance with the hymns. Um, A nobleman could authenticate a document by pressing the hem into wax, just like a seal. A husband could divorce a wife by cutting off the hem of her skirt. When someone's hem got cut off, you all, 
it was as if they're being stripped of their authority. It would be humiliating. It would bring shame. So one of the things you can do this week on your connection there, read the story you find in 1 Samuel where David is in the cave and meets Saul and cuts off his hymn. And look what happens and look at David's response right after he did it. Um, Again, a king's conquests could be sewn into the hem of their clothing. And think about this one. Conquest being sewn into the hem. And then everybody turn to Isaiah 6.1. We'll, we'll read this one together. Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What do you think might be sewn onto that train for it to be so large? It fills a temple? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. That's beautiful. He who conquers all enemies, even death, even death sewn into that hymn. So she says, do all these things, wash, anoint, put on clothing, uncover his feet, lie down. And then she says, and he will tell you what to do. Again, Ruth probably doesn't have full understanding of what's going on here. We know that Naomi has been teaching her. We've seen that. So maybe she's shared more details with her here. I I don't know. But whether she has or not, I still think, wow, this would be a scary night. (laughs) A lot of things could happen. Um, But she trusts her mother-in-law. Obviously, you all... Naomi has done some very special things to elicit such trust from her daughter-in-law because her response is, all that you say, I will do. No questions asked. No more details asked. No, are you sure? Really that? All that you say, I will do. This shows submission. It shows trust. It shows that she has a teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. So, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So again, not only did she say she would do it, Then we see she actually did it. She actually did it just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And you all, she did all of it. Not just part of it. 
not the easier part. Oh, yeah, I'll take a bath. I'll, I'll do the first stuff, but I'm not going to go lay at the feet. She did all of it. Partial obedience is not obedience. It's not. She did all of it. Could this story have turned out very differently if she only did the easier parts? Yes. Yes. This is what our walk is. This is what our faith walk is. He says it, and we do it, even when we don't always understand it, even when it doesn't always make sense. He says it, and we do it. That's, that's faith. Faith is an action of putting our trust in him, even when we don't know it all. So she did everything. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So it says when he was merry. Now the NIV says in good spirits. And you all, if you think about it, remember the beginning of our story, Bethlehem, Judah, probably all of the territories had been through a famine. This very likely could have been the first harvest after the famine. So yeah, he's probably pretty merry. Okay. Then it says she came softly. That word softly there comes from lat, which means secretly, privately. You all, this, she wasn't not making a show of this. Okay. This was just between them. And we're going to see a very reciprocal care of one another's reputation here. Okay. So it says at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So look how she sort of introduces herself here. I am Ruth, your servant. First of all, nothing here, you all, about, oh, I'm Ruth the Moabite. Okay? She's just saying, I I am Ruth, your servant. So she uses her name and the word servant. And you all, we can miss this in English because we have sort of one word for servant. Okay? When she first met Boaz and she said to him, if you remember, this is in verse 213. She first meets Boaz and he obviously, um, or she had already found favor with him. Okay. And she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. 
Now here she uses the Hebrew word shipka, which means a slave servant. Okay? Now when she says, I am Ruth, your servant, she uses the word ama, and that means a maidservant. This is a very different ranking. A maidservant had rights within the household. A maidservant was allowed to get married, and maidservants could produce heirs. So if you look at your chart there, I have for you the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can see, obviously, Abraham, Sarah. We talked about this last week. Um, They have Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah. They have Jacob and Esau. The, um, The covenant here is going now through Jacob. Jacob has two wives, Rachel and Leah. You can see Leah here has four heirs that become um, tribal leaders. Rachel has two, but you know the story. So much jealousy and rivalry. I've got very strong opinions on this, which I won't put on the tape because it's just my opinion. But um, if we have time, I might give it to you later about things like this. But we, we know that during this time, at one point, Leah gave her maid servant to Jacob, and she had two heirs. Same rights, you all. They got the inheritance, just like the other brothers. And then the same thing with Rachel. Rachel gave her Bila, which was also a maid servant, who produced two heirs as well. So they... These boys had equal standing, okay, equal standing in terms of their inheritance. So this is a very different word she is using here, okay? Then she says, spread your wings. This is actually an expression, um, again, it's about clothing. If you look there in the picture, you can see the wings of a garment, were just these long sleeves that fell from someone's arms, okay? So it evokes mentions, you all, in various places in the Bible where it talks about the Lord's wings, okay? Um, Where it says Boaz himself earlier in chapter 2 said, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is just symbolic of someone taking someone else in for care, for protection, and for provision. So that's what she is asking him for, you all. (laughs) She's asking a lot. She's asking a lot. And then she says, for you are a redeemer. And this comes from the Hebrew word goel. A kinsman redeemer had very specific rights and responsibilities within a family. And we're going to get to that in just a minute when Boaz is talking about it. So we're going to leave it right there for now. 
and get back to it. But she just tells him, spread your wings for you are a redeemer. She's saying, you had the responsibility. You have a, the right to take care of me, also the responsibility to take care of me. Um, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. Now, we're never told his age, so we don't really know. We do know if he is a kinsman, a close kinsman of Elimelech. He could possibly even be his brother. So um, probably closer to the age of Naomi. Some commentaries put him at about 45 to 55, but nobody knows for sure. I'm not, not totally sure how they come up with that. But he's an older man. And he's telling her that she, he recognizes what she's doing here. She probably had some options, okay? And she is choosing Boaz. So he says, this kindness is greater than the first, her first kindness was taking care of her mother-in-law, and he recognized that already. Her last kindness was seeking him when she could have gone after someone else. So, I think it's interesting in this story, we are never given physical descriptions of either of them. Now, we can assume Ruth was probably beautiful because we know she caught his eye as soon as he saw her, but no physical description. Um, we're not given any physical description of Boaz either. What we are given over and over and over again is insight into their character. Insight into their character. I think the narrator, again, isn't wanting us to get caught up on looks. He's wanting us to see what is truly important. Maybe there's some lessons here in how people look for partners to do this life with. Truly important things. This is what is being brought out in both of them in this story. Male and female, it goes both ways. So he says in verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen, for all my fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman. All the townsmen? All of them? <laughs> Oh, you all, word gets around about how people act. Word gets around what people do. I think this is another reason why Boaz is seeing here that she probably had some options because he's not the only one 
that has noticed this worthy woman who's come into town. So he says, I will do for you all that you ask. You all, again, I'm not even sure that she totally knew what she was asking. (laughs) She just did what Naomi told her to do. (laughs) He, He is the answer, and I'm not sure she even knows all the questions. But he's saying, don't you worry. I I got this. Don't you worry. I'm taking care of it. Nothing to fear. Um, And remember, you all, Boaz is a type of who? Christ. You all, when we are in relationship with him, we have nothing to fear anymore. Not even death, nothing to fear. And again, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So a little application here. Think about reputations. Can we all agree that they are very important? Our actions, you all, have consequences, both good and bad. Think, think about in your life, what, what guards do you put up to protect your reputation? What guards do you put up to protect other people's reputations? Think about that. And then for a connection, read 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 23, and just see if anything sticks out to you. So he says, you are a worthy woman. This comes from the Hebrew, ashet kahil, and it is the same word used as excellent wife in Proverbs 31. So she's pretty much asking, will you marry me? And he's pretty much answering, oh, you will be an excellent wife. And here he says, and now it is true, I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So here we get a little twist in the story. So first off, he acknowledges that he's a redeemer. So what does this mean? Um, I, I want to show you some things, and I actually had one last week, and I forgot to show it to you. As we go along here, a lot of questions and texts and emails I've been getting are simply like, how, how are you studying, and where do you find this, and how are you doing this? And you all, it is time, time number one. It's tools, which I'm going to try to show you. And I, I believe just keeping a teachable spirit, not thinking you know it, just coming at a book empty and saying, God, I want whatever is in here. I'm not coming at it like I know it all already, just time, tools, and being teachable. And so the first week I just showed you this book, so great on proper names. So much, so much insight you can get into people through this. Um, and then you all just, if you don't have one, 
just get yourself a good Bible dictionary. You can look up anything. It explains it all. It explains the process of the harvest. It tells you, I mean, all sorts of things. So he, here we get the definition of a goel because unlike the other laws that we've looked at so far, there's not a specific place for this one because it covers a multitude of things, okay? A multitude of different responsibilities. So I wrote, I believe, did I just copy and paste the definition? Do you have that in your notes? Okay, good. Yes. So a great definition. So I'm just going to read it here so that you can get the idea. It's a male relative who, according to various laws found in the Pentateuch, remember we talked about that, the Pentateuch, five books of the law, first five books, which held the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need of vindication. And this part's very interesting, you all, because although the term kinsman redeemer is only used seven times, all of which in the book of Ruth, and the avenger of blood is used 12 times, the Hebrew verb goel, from which both of these terms is translated, is used over a hundred times. We see it in words like redeemer and even near relative. So this Hebrew term designates a male relative who delivers or rescues. There's a couple verses there that you can look into this week. He redeems property. There's a verse for that. He redeems People, if they've been sold into slavery, he avenges the murder of a relative as a guiltless executioner. You all, he had the right to avenge murder. And he can receive restitution for a wrong done to a relative who had already died. Does this sound like a powerful person? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the main thing here, you all, the unique emphasis of what this Goel was in terms of redemption, salvation, and vindication, it was associated on behalf of a relative who was in need. Who is more needy than a widow with no male sons. Not, not many people back then. Okay? So when she says, you are a redeemer, that is saying a lot. All these things he has the right to do for her, has the responsibility to do for her. Okay? And when he says, yes, I am a redeemer, he's saying... Yes, I, I can do these things. However, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Because this was a system and it was all built on relationship. So again, we do not know what Boaz's relationship was to Elimelech. He could have been a brother. He could have been a cousin. Could have been an uncle. Again, we're, we're not sure. 
All we know is that there's someone closer in relationship to Elimelech than he was. It might have even been an older brother of Boaz. It could be that close. We don't know. And again, you all, we never get told who he is. We just know that the right to this and the responsibility will fall on him first. Okay. So there's a redeemer nearer than I. Some versions just say there is a nearer kinsman. So remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will do it. I would love to hear how he said those words. <laughs> how does he say, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. I'm, I, I would just love to hear this because I think there's something almost sarcastic maybe in there. I'm not sure. Um, but as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So, Boaz, righteously, you all, because that's who he is, righteously defers this to someone else. We, we know Naomi, or Ruth, has caught his eye. We know what he just said about her, that he wants her as a wife. We're going to learn next week just what a powerful, important man he is. And he still humbly defers. Maybe it wasn't sarcastic. It probably wasn't. That's probably all in my own mind. <laughs> but he says, there, there is someone who has the right to you before me. So, a couple things to know about the kinsman redeemer because he says these words, if he will redeem you, good. If he is not willing, someone did not have to do the part of the kinsman. Okay? It, it wasn't forced on them. There, there were three requirements. Number one, they had to be, like we saw, a close relative, a close male relative. They had to be able to perform whatever was being asked of them. They had to have the means to actually do what was being asked. But they also had to be willing. It was not forced because you all... <laughs> There was a cost to the kinsmen. There was a, sometimes a huge cost that he personally paid to redeem something for someone else. Okay? So he had to be willing. And then he says these words, As the Lord lives, this was the most solemn vow an Israelite could make. As the Lord lives, if he does not redeem you, I will redeem you. Hmm. So then, um, did I miss that? Oh, so she lays down at her feet until morning. Probably you all, possibly 
the first time she's felt peace, security, maybe a little hope throughout this whole story. She, she knows something is about to change. Um, because when he says, I will redeem you, she, she knows one way or the other, something is happening. She's getting redeemed. Okay? Be it through Boaz or someone else, her, her life is going to be different. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. You all, he is a gentleman of gentlemen, protecting her reputation, showing propriety. You all, nothing, um, nothing questionable went on at all. Even how she acted was absolutely 100% okay and proper. Nothing happened. But sometimes things don't even have to happen for talking to start. Simply an appearance. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was totally normal for someone to approach their kinsman redeemer, absolutely, and ask for him to redeem her. And we're going to see a little bit more of that next week because we're going to get into some of the laws of the kinsman. But yes, so there was nothing inappropriate happening here at all. And yet again, I think we just see a care and a concern for her. Um, not, not to mention you all, here's an older man. Here's somebody that it sounds like the whole town has caught note of. Could, could he say some things? Uh, oh, you all, this could have gone different in a million different ways. It really could have. And, and that's why in here, you all, I put like just a little block in here that you can study out on your own this week of gossip. Um, we, we know, obviously, that that building blocks of relationship is trust. And gossip simply maligns another person and destroys trust. And I don't know if it's only or simply because women tend to talk more than men do, but I do believe it is a sin that affects us as women more than it does men. And it's something we need to guard ourselves against. It is serious. Gossip is serious, and we take it so lightly. It's hardly even addressed anymore, you all. There are shows with that word in their title. There's just, it's just become this thing. I mean, it's hardly even looked down on anymore. It is serious. I put some verses in here for you to look at because I want you to notice the kind of list 
gossip makes it on. <laughs> There's some pretty horrendous things on these lists that gossip is right in the middle of. So, so yes. So this week, just take some time and maybe study that one out on your own a little bit. So verse 15, then he says, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So six measures of barley. What in the world? Um, You all, this was Boaz showing Naomi his intentions for Ruth. Okay? Ruth again. She may or may not have understood this. I don't think she did. But Naomi sure did. Now, now we're not even told what the actual measurement is. The important thing here is that it was six. And this would have spoken something to her. Because how many days did it take God to create the world? What do you do on the seventh day? He is saying, I will not rest until I have this taken care of. I will work until this is done for you. That's what was communicated in that gesture. And then (laughs) Boaz told her, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. What had Ruth said about herself? Remember at the beginning of this story, she went away full and she came back. And now Boaz is saying, don't go back empty. I think she's had enough. Show her. Show her this is about to be done for her. Oh, you all. As excited as I'm sure he is about his prospects with Ruth, he still shows care, concern, respect, compassion for Naomi. Absolutely beautiful. So then she replies, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. That's how we know that she knows what he was communicating there. So she got the message. And then, wait, my daughter. All they have to do now, you all, is wait on the fulfillment of Boaz's word. Easier said than done. <laughs> Ladies, that, that's what we do as well. Sometimes all we can do in a situation is wait on the fulfillment of our Lord's word. So that's where they are now. 
next week, again, we're going to see just how powerful of a man Boaz is. We're going to see how self-sacrificing he is by doing the part of the kinsman redeemer. Um, And then again, we're going to see this final law, the law of redemption that ties this entire story together. So, hope to see you next week.